Good morning. If you're visiting today or a first-timer, we are in Genesis, uh, going through the entire book. Uh, We are in Genesis 6, uh, starting in verse 18, and I'm going to read all the way through chapter 7 today. So I didn't, I'm not going to put the text on the screen because I was able to take a half hour to work through all that and click it and all that jazz. So, um, but the title of the sermon today is Help My Faith. So let me just... Let me just read, if you have your Bibles, I, I, I was asked uh, last weekend, what translation do I use, or even do I put up in the screen, do I read from, um, and it's kind of an unfair uh, answer, because sometimes I'm ESV, sometimes I'm CSV, sometimes I'm NIV, sometimes I'm my own translation, and just if I think, you know, it's worded better this way. Uh, so, and, unless you have the Bible of Timothy's edition, um, it, it, it may be a little bit harder to track along, but I just uh, wanted to note that uh, for anyone wondering why their Bible does not match up, and they've tried every single rendition that there is. So, um, Okay, help my faith. Uh, Genesis six eighteen. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. And take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, And a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. I'm going to keep reading, but just notice that the Bible says male and female to keep the offspring alive. Verse 4, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are not clean, and of birds and Everything that creeps on the, the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, all that day, all the found, fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wives, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. 
They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all the flesh died. That moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on dry land, and whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. The Lord, uh, God, I pray uh, that we have an understanding of your word this morning as we proclaim it and and respond to it, Lord, and and, and our response would would be an active faith to your promises, to your warnings, Lord, to your word. And the things that you have said. And God, I, as, as, I, as I read it and see and that you are the ones who shut them in. You, you warned them about the flood. You told them to build the ark. They built their ark. You commanded them to go in. They went. And then you shut them in. You're our protector. You protected them from the flood, Lord. And you protect us from your judgment because Jesus Christ faced it for us on the cross. God, I pray that, that we would be closed in, that, that our hearts and our minds, our strength, all of who we are, would have a firm grasp and understanding that those who are, are sinners that you redeem, that their sins are removed completely, and you shut us in your grace, and you will not let us go. You will complete this good work in us. Lord, I pray that we understand it this morning in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to start off with a, a, little, a little heavy this morning by reading a small portion of an article written by a mother who lost her child in 2006. After her loss, she wrote, and I quote, Weeks after my son died of a brain tumor in 2006, I was told to, f- I was told to my face by a co-worker, that the reason my child died was because I did not have enough faith. I didn't tell her to get out of my office. I actually debated her. Her arguments made no sense. But what I didn't say is that secretly a part of me believed her. I felt responsible and that somehow I just hadn't believed hard enough. My faith hadn't been strong enough. And if I had just believed stronger or harder, 
maybe he would have been healed. Have you received counsel like that before? When, when someone told you to, to have faith in the outcome that you wanted. And, and if your faith was strong enough, it would happen. And, and maybe even though something didn't seem right about that counsel, seemed a little off, but yet you repeatedly tried to make yourself believe. Have you been there? And then, and then when you didn't what you get what you so desperately hoped for, not only did you question whether or not it was because you didn't believe strongly enough, but, but you also felt this tremendous burden of guilt that the outcome was your fault. Quite possibly, you, you may still live in that shame. So I want to say this morning, if that is you, loved one, I, I want to assure you that you don't have to live with that guilt. And one of the most commonly used phrases, one of the most commonly used, yet one of the most misused or misunderstood phrases is, you've got to have faith, or something along the lines of, just, just have more faith, just have faith. Sometimes it's used appropriately, but many times, as was the case for this mother, it was not. And, and I, probably like most of you, have been on the receiving end of that type of counsel. We hear it all the time. We even hear it, that the, you know, have more faith, we hear that phrase used by people who aren't even Christians. Yet among Christians, even among Christians, it's still commonly used, but a lot of times it's used without having a proper understanding of what it actually means. And that's a huge problem, because if we of all people, Christians, we should know what it means to have faith, especially if we're going to counsel another person to have faith. The, the, the type of faith that the mother was told to have, that type of counsel, it implies that, that the outcome of the circumstance that we face depends on the strength of our desire. I'll, I'll say it again. It, just have faith. If you would have had more faith, you would have got the outcome you wanted. It's, it's saying that that outcome of the circumstance that she faced it depended on the strength of her desire. And I'm going to suggest today nothing could be further from the truth. I'll also suggest that faith used improperly as such, it's nothing more than wishful thinking. And on a much more severe level, possibly, or, or, or not possibly, but on a much more severe level, possessing a wrong understanding of faith, it can be harmful, obviously, to others, even ourselves, but it can even be sinful. I'm talking to you, prosperity gospel. All right, so with that said, 
I believe it would be beneficial for us to lay the foundations regarding genuine faith today as we work through Genesis 6 and 7. Lord willing, we will tighten up our doctrine of faith together because as the prophet Micah reminds us, the righteous shall live by faith. And as the author of Hebrews reminds us, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So faith is important. Point number one. Don't pay attention there. Point number one, faith works. <laughs> There's a double entendre there. Genesis 6.18. But I, the Lord says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. Down to verse 22. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. Now, let's start off with just a few basic definitions of faith. It's never basic when we quote Calvin, but <laughs> Calvin says a firm, what is faith? Calvin says a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Like I said, got to unpack Calvin. Luther. A living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. I didn't put it up. I want to read this one. It's a definition from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association in the form of Q&A. Question. A friend of mine keeps telling me that I need to have faith, and I suppose he's right but I'm not sure what it means. Can you give me a simple definition of faith? Answer, faith simply means believing that something is true and then committing our lives to it. Faith simply means believing that something is true and then committing our lives to it. I think they're all helpful definitions. But I like this third one. I think the third, the third definition really expresses this first point that I'm trying to get at, which is a response or an action should proceed and will proceed from genuine faith. So, so in other words, faith responds to whatever it believes. So faith is active. Faith works. James affirms this when he says what? He says, faith without works is useless. James asks, can a faith like that save? You know, we, see, we see this illustrated perfectly from Noah here in Genesis 6. God says, I'm, I'm going to flood the earth. Noah believed God. And his confidence in God's warning, it resulted in the construction of the ark. So you see, Noah's faith resulted in an action. I th think about it for a moment. Imagine, if you will, what it would have been like if Noah told his family and his sons and their wives to have faith, right? He, he Christianized it. On that side of the resurrection, 
have faith. But never built the ark. Right? It'll be okay. But he never constructs it. I mean, that, that, that faith then, in their situation, and the judgment that's coming in the form of a flood, that would have been useless. Why? Because without the ark, they would have perished with the rest of creation, right? And that's why James said, faith without works is dead. In their case, literally. So again, faith works. It's active. It's an action. It's a response to what you believe. There was a moment last week on our flight home where the turbulence for a moment felt like the plane was going to flip over or turn over. And therefore, I fastened. I remember looking at Jay and then I just fastened my belt, lit, belt really quick, quickly. Why? Why did I fasten my seatbelt? Because I believe if I didn't, I was going to get thrown out of my seat when the plane flipped over. So, so my response to fasten my seatbelt was because of what I believed was going to happen. That's genuine faith, right? Genuine faith is when we act accordingly to whatever we believe is going to happen. Let's gospelize it. Because understanding faith in that way, that faith is a response to what we believe, is actually very helpful interpreting the Bible when we, when we get to a passage such as Acts 2, when Peter's preaching at Pentecost, he's preaching the gospel, he's preaching that Christ died, that he's the Messiah, they're cut to the heart from the message, and then what do they say? Well, what must we do to be saved? Peter says, repent and be baptized. So someone might say, well, I mean, I guess that means salvation requires good works. No, that's not right. Repentance and baptism are the responses from their faith that Jesus is the Messiah and died for their sins and rose again. The same is true for us. Repentance and baptism doesn't save us. It's a response from our belief that Jesus died and rose again. And it results in repentance and baptism. We're not forgiven because we repent or because we're baptized. Why are we forgiven? Because the blood of Christ was sufficient to remove our sins, to pay the debt that we owed which we were unable to do. And so those who entrust their sins, all of their sins to the work of Christ on the cross will be saved. I mean, loved one, we, if you think, we aren't even saved by our faith. We're saved by grace. And our faith is the conduit to which we receive His promise. And what is the promise that we believe? His promise is that the blood of Christ saves us from his wrath. Jesus saves us. Our faith is just the response to believing it. 
getting kind of loud. Calm it down. Oh, she's not even here. Okay. Point two. God's promises are the object of our faith. I'm bouncing around verses here, and then I'm just going into Hebrews as well. So, so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth, so make yourself an ark. And we get into Hebrews 11, into the New Testament, verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, when warned about these things, not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. So, so, so we talked about genuine faith. It's an action a response to what we believe, but I want to make a distinction between generic faith and a biblical faith. A generic faith would be something like me on the plane, because a person can believe something is going to happen, right? They can fully believe that plane is going to flip over, but yet that doesn't mean it will, right? And it didn't. I can have faith. This is, this is another uh, illustration of generic faith. I can have faith the Cleveland Browns are going to win the Super Bowl this year. I <laughs> see it. Like that's, there you go. We know it's not going to happen. The laugh already admits it. But I, I can buy tickets to this year's Super Bowl. I can wager a month's pay or however much it costs to go to one now for that to happen. I can book the hotel, wherever it's going to be, I can, whatever. No matter how much I want the Cleveland Browns to win, or how much I prepare for them to bring home the Lombardi Trophy, there is no promise, there is no certainty, there is no assurance that I can cling to that that is true. And if for some reason the Browns actually win the Super Bowl this year, just scratch this illustration out. But I'm pretty sure we're all like, yeah, it's not going to happen. But just, you get the point. I, I can do, I, my, my faith that something will happen, I can respond to it, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen, right? So that's just a generic faith. A biblical faith is different. A biblical faith, it's, it's the same as generic faith, except its belief is always rooted, always anchored in God's promises. It doesn't attach its faith to something like NFL football teams. That, that is, that's why you know, the author of Hebrews defines faith as the assurance of things not seen. So like Noah, our faith, a biblical faith, it's it's an action based upon trust. You don't see it, but you believe it because God promised it, right? But it's, when he says the assurance of things not seen, the author of Hebrews, this is where, this is where we, we seem, even as Christians, to veer off the path with this passage 
and, 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 and we think that we're supposed to have assurance in anything that we place our faith in, not just God's promises, but just the concept of faith. I just need to believe it hard enough. I'm supposed to have assurance. It's going to happen. As in, we would interpret the passage as faith is the assurance of things not seen, and therefore, if I really desire something, the Bible's telling me I should have confidence I will get it. No, 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 that is not what the author of Hebrews is saying. And in fact, that, that type of, if we think that that's what biblical faith is, what we as Christians should have faith as or in, and that's how mothers who lose their children receive horrible counsel that their faith wasn't strong enough. Because again, what, what that type of faith implies is that the outcome of our circumstance depends on the strength of our belief. And when we do that, we put or we place the power of our desire over the will of God. That type of faith is not what the author of Hebrews is referring to. That type of faith, putting hard desire over the will of God, is, is contrary to Christ, and it's actually a worldly belief that a person can will something to happen. The ability to will something into a reality is, it actually has a term for it. It's called manifestation. And, it, and it's, I don't know how else to say it tactfully, it's just self-centered paganism. Loved ones, Christians, we don't will things to happen. We kneel before the Father as Christ did. And we ask Him for His will to be done, not ours. I'm not saying that we can't ask Him for the things that we desire. But you know, when we go to prayer, we're not just saying, Lord, give me this. Lord, this is what I want, is this is what you want. And if I'm going to imitate Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, who knew that He was about to be forsaken and said, is there another way? Or is this the cup I must drink from? Not my will, but yours. That is the life of a Christian. That's the faith of a Christian. That's where we put our hope and our confidence. Not that what we desire is going to get done, but what God promised and what He desires is going to get done. That's the Christian faith. Prosperity gospel doesn't like that. Now, if we take an analysis of Hebrews 11, which we're about to do, not the entire thing, just a few verses, we can see that the common denominator of the heroes of the faith, if you will, their common denominator was that they all had an uncompromising trust in God's promise. Hebrews 11.3, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made 
out of what was visible. Now, that's not even that. That's us too, right? By faith. Why do we? God's word says it. And God spoke. God said, let there be. And there was. We believe that. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him, here we go, anyone that comes to him must believe, one, that he exists, two, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Right? They're, Enoch and, and, and these heroes of the faith, they believe that the Lord has promised something that he will deliver. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went. Faith resulted in action. Even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, even Sarah, Abraham's wife, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking ahead to his reward. You see? Their faith wasn't blind. They couldn't see it, so to speak. They couldn't see the end product. Abraham didn't even know where he was going. He just knew who he was following. They didn't know the end result, but they did know the one who made the promise. And as it says about Sarah, they knew that he was faithful to his promises. In God, there are no broken promises. Now that's faith. What the co-worker should have said to the mother from the article I read earlier is that there are no promises in God's word that we will not experience tremendous pain on this earth. Parents will lose children. Children will lose parents. The wicked will prosper while the righteous are desperate just for a meal to eat. But among all of the affliction, the Bible promises us that God is good. And everything that happens has a purpose. And that he cares for us greater than we even realize how we should be cared for. Jesus says, which one of your earthly fathers, when, when asked, one of your sinful fathers, when asked for something to eat, is going to give a snake or a stone? No, he'll give bread and fish. So if... The evil fathers of this earth will give good things to their sons. Then will not our Heavenly Father give us much more? I know it can feel like snakes and stones, but the Lord doesn't give that. He gives bread and fish. He knows how to care for us greater than we even know how to ask. 
You ever just found yourself in prayer and you're just like, I don't even know how I'm supposed to pray for this. Lord, just do what you're going to do because I, you know better than I do. Spirit, groan inward with me, inward through me to the Father because I have no idea how to pray for this. Affliction is real. And in that day when affliction does knock on your door, the proper response to faith is not believing your way out of the situation. The proper response of faith is believing in spite of your circumstance, God is still faithful to his word. I, I know there's plenty of people who can say, I trusted God and, and almost, almost bitter or resentful toward God because they would say, I trusted God with my entire life but I still lost what I treasured most. But the faith that we see from those who went before us, they, they too said, I lost everything. I trusted God and lost everything and gave it all up. Paul says it's all rubbish. I trusted God, I lost everything, except what I treasure most. Because what I treasured most was the faithfulness of God because he has never forsaken me. So we get some application from Deuteronomy 31.6. Therefore, therefore be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified or afraid of them. Why? For it is the Lord your God who goes with you, and he will not leave you or forsake you. Believing that and responding to it, that's faith. That's a biblical faith. That's what we're called to do. And that's the type of faith we're called to have. But I want to switch gears for a moment. And I want to address our dads with point three. The Father is the foundation of a family-centered faith, or for a family-centered faith. Now, for the record, we aren't directly told of the importance of Noah's faith as being foundational to his families. He doesn't explicitly state that, right, but we can see it. And it helps us understand that the faith of a father is fundamental for a family-centered faith. A Christ-centered family. That doesn't lessen the worth of a mother, nor the significance of her role. And the Lord knows I would not be the man I am today, nor would my family be who they are if it were not for my wife and their mother. And, I'm, and I know I'm not the only one who shares that testimony. And I think they might have shared these statistics with us in Chicago last week, but they were easy to find. I want to share these with you from a Swiss study that was actually done over 30 years ago, I guess 30 years ago in 1994, in order to show the vital importance that the father plays in his family's faith. This study done, it gives insight to the trends among churchgoers. It actually is regardless of religion. The study provided a wide range of family scenarios providing data for a variety of family situations. 
What happens if the mother is practicing and the father is non-practicing as in religion? What happens if only the father is practicing? And the result seems to suggest that children follow the example of dad. Are you ready? If both mom and dad go to church faithfully, 33% of their children will grow up to be regular attending patrons of the church. If only mom is taking kids to church, only 2% of children will become lifelong churchgoers, while 37% will attend occasionally. An ex- excess of 60% of her children will end up leaving the church. Here's one of my favorite ones. What happens if dad is active, but mom is not? <laughs> Curiously, it says, the numbers seem to go up. As previously stated, 33% of children remain when they witness both mom and dad going to church regularly. But, but look at the statistic. The number grows 5% to 38% with an active dad and an occasionally active mom. And, and, and it's even more fascinating. It conti- I'm not laughing because it's, I'm just, it's somewhat staggering. It continues to go up to 44% when it's just the dad taking the kids to church. So moms, stay at home and the kids will come. No, that's not, that's not the... But think about that. Think about that. I mean, if dad does not regularly attend... It says only one in 50 of his children, of these children, will remain in the church. One out of 50 if dad is not regular. And according to another study conducted by the Lifeway Research Group, guess what day is the lowest average holiday for church attendance? Father's Day. Father's Day. And outside of Christmas and Easter, Mother's Day is the... The largest. The lowest average holiday for church attendance is Father's Day. Maybe the numbers are just a coincidence. Maybe they've changed in 30 years. Oh, I'm sure they have changed somewhat. Maybe for the worse, maybe better, maybe they're equitable. But maybe they reveal the natural order of the nuclear family that says fathers have been tasked with leading their family to the Lord. And if you don't, if we take these numbers at any type of face value at all, these numbers reveal if we don't, dads, our kids don't stand a chance. The burden of raising our children, even spiritually, is not to be isolated and put on the shoulders of mom alone. We must, as dads, as fathers, embrace the reality that the way in which our family views us is pivotal to the direction that our family is going to go. Follow Christ, and they will follow. Show them Christ is unworthy of your time, and they'll grow to do the same. You either lead your kids onto the ark or you leave them in the sea to perish with the rest.
there's, there's some low-hanging fruit for application there for dads, families. Low-hanging fruit. There's an easy one. The Lord just gives us a softball. <laughs> Whack it. How can I show my family that Christ means most as dad and leader of this family? Don't forsake and neglect to assemble with one another on the Lord's day. Make worship with the church the priority of your household. I'm not talking about vacations. I'm not talking about being sick. Cut out the excuses. Make this day a priority for your family and show them that the greatest treasure of your heart is Christ. And if he isn't, spend time with him until he becomes the greatest treasure of your heart. I want to conclude that the assurance of faith does not rest upon the strength of faith. The assurance of our faith does not rest upon the strength of faith. I heard a piece, maybe you've heard it from D.A. Carson, uh, about the Passover lamb in Exodus. I'm going to steal it, but I'm going to, I'm going to change it from the Exodus story to the ark and Noah's sons. I want to show, what I want to show is that the assurance of the brother's faith to enter the ark, the assurance of the brother's faith did not rest upon the strength of their faith. This scenario is just conjecture, by the way. I'm just trying to make a point here. That the assurance of faith does not rest upon the strength of faith. Okay, if I don't do good with this just for homework tonight, listen, D.A. Carson's, it'll be much better than what I say. It's good. The blood of the Passover lamb. All right, imagine, imagine, if you will, the day before the flood. Again, we're, we're, in, we're in Noah's real time. One of the brothers, Shem, Ham, Japheth, one of the brothers asked the others, you guys scared? Yeah. The other brothers say, no. We've done everything our father Noah said to do. Everything the Lord commanded us to do, we've done it. Right? This ship is going to keep us safe. Right? And the, the timid brother says, yo, I know. But God's going to destroy the entire earth. Right? Like water's going to cover Mount Everest. There's a lot of death and terror about to take place, boys. Aren't you, aren't you guys even a little bit scared? Just puffing out his chest and in complete confidence in the Lord, one of the brothers says, we'll be fine. There's nothing to worry about. One, one of the brothers, their confidence was strong. Their faith was strong, if you will. Their trust was strong. And the others was weak. Their faith was hanging on by a thread. They were scared. Now, on the day 
that the vast watery depths burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open and the rain fell upon the entire earth. Which brother was spared and which brother perished along with the flood? The weaker brother along with confidence. None of them perished. All three brothers were spared. And the reason why is because their lives didn't depend on the strength of their faith. Instead, their lives depended on the faithfulness of the one who promised to spare them. Loved ones, the same is true for us. Our salvation does not depend on the strength of our faith, but rather our salvation rests solely on the faithfulness of the one who made the promise to raise us up again. John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that where I'm going, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. He's went there to prepare a place for us. And if I go and prepare a place for you, what does Jesus promise? I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. His promise assures us He's preparing a place for us in heaven, a place in the new earth, a place where we will be with him. And while our faith may stumble, our faith may shudder, at times it may even just fail, the promises of God will always remain the same. So therefore, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that, that there would be no one who does not enter into the way, into the path of salvation, Lord, that you've provided only through Christ Jesus. The next judgment's not coming in the form of a flood, Lord, but, but it is coming to be executed by your wrath and anger against sinners who refuse to, well, to repent and believe. God, your spirit who, who gives breath, who gives the breath of life to us is also the same who comes and regenerates hearts, takes, takes the heart of sinners who, who are, are living as contemporaries in, in Noah's time frame and corrupt and wicked generation and turns those hearts to, that, that no longer love wickedness or, or sin but, but love you and want to please you, want to, want to walk by faith. God, help us understand how to do that. Encourage us to be in your word, to be in prayer, to spend time with you, to understand, Lord, what would you have me do and how can I figure out what that is? And ground us, ground us in your word, Lord. May we be a people who live by faith, God. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.